We thank you for this church. We thank you for this church family. We thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy, that we can gather together without fear of anybody kicking down the doors and hauling any of us away. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are in very, very difficult and heartbreaking circumstances, all because they declare faith in you. Pray that you would especially be with them today on the Lord's day, that you would strengthen them and give them your peace. And Lord, if we also pray for relief of their circumstances, that you relieve them of their pain, that you would reunite, reunite those who have been imprisoned for their faith with their families. We pray for miracles in that regard. We pray for all those in our church family who have suffered great loss uh, recently, loss of loved ones. Pray that you would be near to them and give them your peace and comfort. Lord, we thank you for your word that it never changes, that it is our strength. It isn't just a book, but it is power. It is living and active, and it cuts us to the quick, and it lays everything out before you, and, and you fill us with your strength and your power through these words. So, Lord, I pray that as we uh, deal with a potentially sensitive subject today, that you would open up our hearts and hear what you have for us this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes great things just come by accident. In 1886, a pharmacist named John Pemberton had a headache that just would not go away, no matter what he took to relieve the pain. Pemberton ran his own chemical company, and not finding a cure, Pemberton tried making his own remedy, mixing cocoa leaves and cocoa nuts together. However, one of his lab assistants accidentally spilled some carbonated water into that mixture, and what do you think was born? Coca-Cola. You got it. <laughs> the famous soft drink named Coca-Cola. The cocoa leaves have since been internationally banned by most of the world. It's a different recipe now, as it's the raw material used to produce cocaine. But the recipe for the taste of Coca-Cola lives on as one of the most guarded secrets. In 1898, two brothers were trying to make a breakfast granola bar. In their quest, they accidentally left a pot of wheat cooking on the stove, and when they finally discovered their mistake, they found a pot full of something with a stale and hard consistency. Instead of throwing it out, though, those two brothers, William and John Kellogg, decided to market their accident as Kellogg's cornflakes. And one of the most eaten and famous breakfast cereals of the 20th and 21st centuries. And in 1924, a carpenter living in Denmark named Kirk Christensen suffered a tremendous loss. His sons burned down his entire carpentry workshop. Quite devastated. That could very well have been the end to Christensen's career, but he saw it as an opportunity to start over. Instead of going back to his regular carpentry business, though, Christensen was forced to scale back everything from the number of staff hired to what his business would now produce. He designed a series of interlocking blocks, originally made out of wood, to start selling, which he called Legos. I discovered that today, the number of Lego pieces in existence outnumber human beings 62 to 1. All of these thriving companies were based on ideas that were quite simply by accident. 
None of these were planned. But when the opportunity arose, the founders of these companies grabbed that opportunity and ran with it. In the parable we're taking a look at today, there's a man who finds himself in a similar situation of failure. But when he saw an opportunity, he grabbed it and took off with it. It became wildly successful. At the same time, we're going to see what Jesus' entire point to this parable really is and how that directly connects to our everyday lives. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, if you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in, in the first verse. Or you can look this up on your favorite smartphone Bible app. Luke chapter 16, verse 1, very first part, we read, Now he was also saying to the disciples, and I just want to take a quick pause right there. Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. The past three parables that we've covered had to do with God's plan of salvation and his heart of mercy towards those who see the truth of their need for repentance and follow through with that by way of Jesus taking their place for their sin. They were directed primarily, these, the, those other three parables were directed primarily at the Pharisees and the other religious leaders gathered around Jesus to point out to them their need for repentance and to point out to them their apathy towards God, towards, towards those who God also loves. The secondary audience in these three parables were those who the Pharisees had labeled as sinners and unworthy of even knowing about God, let alone knowing God. Their only hope was the same. Both sides, those labeled as sinners and the Pharisees, all the hope was the same. Coming to God in repentance. That was it. That was the basis, no matter who you were. You'll notice at the beginning of verse 1 who this morning's parable is directed to. Jesus' disciples. It's not the Pharisees. It's Jesus' disciples. So rather than anyone who is yet to follow Jesus, this parable is directed at those who had made the decision to commit their lives to following Jesus. Now, obviously, as we read through the Gospels, we know that they didn't understand most of what Jesus told them, but that basic loyalty to following him was there. So to his disciples, Jesus gives this parable, second part of verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. As one biblical scholar noted, wealthy people would hire managers to handle their finances, freeing them up to enjoy their lives and not having to worry about building wealth or where their money was going. The direct connection is to a financial manager today. It's very easy to understand it in those terms. Large, large corporations and extremely wealthy people today still use people they hire to handle their finances for them. So they don't have to think about it. They don't need to worry about it. So imagine this wealthy guy's surprise and rage when he finds out that the financial manager he had hired to care for his financial situation had gone and blown a bunch of the money. He was entrusted to protect. I would be mad, right? So, so this wealthy guy calls that manager for a meeting and demands the manager give an account for where all this money went. And in verse 2 we read, And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So we can presume here that the manager is fired right then and there. 
Well, the wealthy man wants him to settle the accounts he had made with people before he leaves, get everything situated, and then I want you out the door. The manager starts thinking to himself about what's going to happen to him when he has to leave. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. The digging this manager is referring to is digging ditches, and it was one of the hardest forms of manual labor. Moreover, he didn't want to have to beg for money either. It looks like he's out of options, except for an idea that he has. He's got one idea. What is this idea? Verses 4 through 7. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Okay. Everybody knows what's going on here, right? We can just close our Bibles and leave? Okay. Let's, let's unpack what this manager's idea was and what he actually pulled off here. According to one biblical scholar, the wealthy man that the manager formerly worked for was a landowner. This landowner would then lease his land to what were called land tenants, who would plant and harvest crops on the landowner's land. At harvest time, those tenants paid for their rent by giving a percentage of what they made off of those crops that they planted and harvested to the landowner. Everybody with me so far? Okay. These tenants would not do all the farming work themselves, though. They, in turn, would hire other hired hands to do the planting, weeding, and harvesting for them, the actual back-breaking field work. In short, these tenants themselves, even though they were leasing the farmland from the extremely wealthy landowner, were actually pretty well off themselves because they had other people working for them. And so a lot of these tenant farmers would be in need of financial managers themselves. To ingratiate himself with these potential future employers, the manager hatches a plan. If there's a less than great harvest any given year, Landowners would very often forgive a part of the lease debt from their tenant farmers. Why would they do that? They would do this as an act of benevolence in order to present themselves as kind and understanding to the rest of society. So what the manager does is under the air of authority coming from the landowner himself, he tells these two tenants to make marks on their copies of the lease indicating that they now owed less to the landowner than originally agreed upon. So what does that mean? In doing so, the tenants had no clue that the manager was not acting on the landowner's authority and granting them this rent cut and actually had been fired already for irresponsibility. All the tenants saw was the landowner being generous by way of the one who, who had been hired to handle his finances. So this puts both the landowner and the financial manager in very good light in these tenants' eyes and in the rest of society. And when we look at what they had cut from their rent, this is no small amount of generosity. According to one biblical scholar, the first tenant owed the landowner 100 measures or about 850 gallons of olive oil originally. 
That's a lot of olive oil, isn't it? That was about a thousand denarii or a thousand days of work. That's about three years worth of wages for the average day laborer with one harvest of olive oil. But what did the manager tell him to cut it down to? Yeah, half of what he originally owed the landowner, which comes out to 500 denarii. That's a huge amount of rent money cut from the lease agreement. The second tenant owed the landowner what comes to about 1,000 bushels of wheat, or 2,500 denarii originally. That's about eight years worth of wages for the average day laborer. And the manager told him to cut that down to 80% of the agreed upon rent, thus again about 500 denarii. The percentages were different, but both tenants had their rent cut down by about 500 denarii apiece. They would have been extremely happy about this, since there's no indication that they had a bad harvest. They just essentially, in other words, they just essentially made an extra 500 denarii off of that year's crops without having to do anything differently. You see why they would be so happy. Yes, it was dishonest on the manager's part, but that's not what Jesus is emphasizing here. What Jesus is emphasizing is what this manager has been able to do to secure his future. He's good either way now. What looked to be that he had no hope in the world, now he's good either way. Why? If his employer does follow through fully with firing him, the manager now has the potential for either one of those tenants to hire him since they had no clue he had been fired. They only connected this manager with that landowner's generosity. But this manager has his, set, his sights set higher. And what's that? Remember that appearance of benevolence that most landowners wanted to present? No doubt those tenants would spread the word about how generous that landowner had been towards them. And no doubt that word would get back to the landowner about his own benevolence. But what had that landowner no memory of doing? Any of that, right? Say what? I did what? It would have taken about two seconds from when the landowner got word about the generosity he knew he hadn't shown to figure out exactly who had portrayed him in that light. That's why the landowner's response in verse 8 is not one of anger at all, which seemed, you would think would be surprising, but let's find out why. And his master, verse 8, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. We can gather from this that the landowner ends up giving the manager another chance. And he doesn't follow through with firing him. Here's why. That landowner was now seen by everyone as what? Kind and generous, right? The cream of the crop. Look how good this guy is. But how would he look if he then suddenly fired the guy who was handling his finances at that time of extreme generosity? Like a huge jerk, wouldn't he? It would look like he fired him because he was gracious and generous, an act of petty selfishness, the last way this landowner wanted to look. So essentially, this landowner had his hands tied now. And it was impossible to fire his manager, at least at this point. 
But instead of being angry at not being able to be rid of this irresponsible manager because he had lost a bunch of his money, and then on top of that, decrease the amount the landowner was set to receive from those tenants, the landowner is impressed with this manager's worldly shrewdness. And that's what Jesus means when he says in verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in relation to other worldly people. But here's where Jesus sets his disciples apart from this, the dishonest way that the manager went about his shrewdness. See, the landowner was impressed with the manager's wisdom, even though it was dishonest, because the landowner had been outwitted and therefore had to give this manager his due respect. He essentially thought, you got me. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm going to give you my due respect. Jesus' disciples, as sons of the light, were to shoot for the same end goal with wisdom, but not do it through dishonesty. And here's what I mean. As one biblical scholar noted, the manager was banking everything on his employer's generosity. That was all, he was taking his entire risk based on what he thought his employer would be generous as. Yes, one of the tenants might have hired him, but that wasn't a sure thing. That was still a huge risk. What the manager was doing was shoring up the landowner not being able to fire him in the first place. That's what he was focused on. And the only hope he had with that investment was his employer's generosity and desire to be seen as generous. In the same way, Jesus' disciples, in using whatever finances their employer, God, entrusted to them, were to use them to build God's kingdom. Verse 9, And I say to you, my disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, or worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And notice how Jesus phrases verse 9. Do this by means of worldly wealth. In other words, Jesus' entire focus in verse 9 is on his disciples using worldly wealth instead of shoring it up and storing it up just to amass a large amount of money. They were to use it, not hoard it for themselves. That's the very basis for how Jesus will finish this section on teaching the lesson of this parable. This is the whole foundation for what Jesus is getting at here and what he says elsewhere in the New Testament about how we're to use our finances. Jesus says elsewhere, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal, but rather store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about using the finances that we have to invest in eternity. That's what he's talking about here. How do we store up treasures in heaven? By using that earthly treasure to bring more people into that kingdom. Verse 9 is Jesus extending the interpretation of this parable to his disciples. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples to use the finances God gives to them to bring more people into God's kingdom or make friends where they will welcome them into the eternal home of heaven. It's all about making an eternal investment with our finances and using them towards that goal, not hoarding them for our own selfishness. 
Jesus then uses that foundation to build upon the rest of this related teaching. Verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous or worldly in a very little thing is unrighteous or worldly also in much. If God the Father is the landowner in this parable, we must not even be in the place that the manager had gotten himself into at the very beginning of the parable. But we should use the same wisdom and have the same goal of banking on God's generosity towards us in how we use our finances. If we're faithful with what little he gives to us to invest in God's kingdom on earth, then that means we can be entrusted with much more than simple earthly riches. We can be entrusted with the true riches. This next verse should be convicting to all of us and cause all of us to take a hard look at ourselves, no matter how much or how little earthly finances we have. Verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous or worldly wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Oh, man. That hits you hard, doesn't it? I want to be as sensitive as possible with this because I know this is a very sensitive and personal topic. But since this is very clear with what Jesus says here in Bath and, back in Matthew 6, this is, this is what this parable is all about. So we've got to talk about it. How wise and gracious and eternally minded or selfish and worldly minded are we with the finances we have, direct, we have directly reveals how faithful our hearts are to serving God. I'll say that again. How wise and gracious and eternally minded or selfish and worldly minded we are with the finances we have directly reveals our hearts, directly reveals how faithful our hearts are to serving God. Why is that? No matter how hard we work or how good we are at what we do, whose money is it really? It's God's, right? It's not ours. It's never been ours and it never will be ours. As Job says, the Lord is the one who gives and the Lord is the one who takes away. It's always been God's and it always will be God's. It's only ever entrusted to us to be used to build God's kingdom on earth. Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, God's, who will give you that which is of your own? This is obviously a reference to this parable and the foolishness of the manager in blowing a bunch of the landowner's money and, and he was going to get fired in the first place. In other words, if, if we can't be trusted to use what is really God's for his kingdom purposes, why would he entrust good gifts to you to use as a blessing to you, for personal blessing? Why would he entrust that to you? In general, we won't be blessed financially by God to be used personally as a gift of blessing if we're not first being faithful to him with what he's originally entrusted to us to use for his kingdom. And while this is not always a guarantee, if you want to see financial blessing in your life, you must first ask yourself if you're already using what's his for his kingdom or not now. And then leave that up to him, what he deems is best and in what timing he deems best. 
Just like with everything else, our salvation, our lives, everything, it all begins and ends with God, and that even includes our finances. It all must start with being faithful towards God with what he's already entrusted to us to use for him. And that's all summed up by the last verse in the section, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Again, that, that hits hard. That hits home. It's very powerful. What we, how we view our finances, and if we view them as God's to use for his glory, or if we view them as just ours for us to hoard and be selfish with, that reveals what our heart really is like and how much we really want to serve God. It all comes down to what we're focused on and devoted spending, devoting spending our time doing. See, there's nothing wrong with having wealth. That's, that's also very clear. There's nothing wrong with having wealth as long as you're using it to build God's kingdom. But how much time and energy are you spending building that up as opposed to serving God in other ways? The time you're spending worrying about the amount of money you have or don't have or wish you had or thinking up ways to get more or being anxious about losing it, that's revealing who you're loving and what you're loving. You're loving that money more than you're loving God. How much time you're spending thinking about it is revealing who you're really serving, who you're really loving. Well, you might, you might say, well, you don't know the life I have. I'm constantly having to think about it because things are really hard right now. But let me ask you again, whose is it? No matter how much or how little it is, whose is it? Does it matter? Depending on your life situation? I'm getting a lot of blank stares here. Does it matter depending on your life situation? No. It's always God's. It's always God's. And therefore, we still have to use it the same exact way. No, no matter how much or how little it is. Loving God more than money is focusing on exactly what Jesus commands us to focus on. I know I'm rippling some feathers here, but this is what God's word says. So don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear, constantly thinking about these things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. What are you spending your time doing? What are you thinking about? What are you worrying about? That's revealing what you're seeking, where your heart really is. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. That's a promise. And he always makes good on his promises. So since the money we have all is really God's, and it doesn't matter the amount, how do we use it to build his kingdom? Well, God may give you more above and beyond creative ways to use the money he's entrusted to you, but the most basic practice his word tells us to do in order to use the finances he's given to us for his kingdom and making that eternal investment is by giving what the Bible calls a regular tithe. And before you guys shut me out here, you know I don't talk about this very much. 
I don't talk about this very often, but this is directly connected to the subject, the direct subject of today's parable. So I want to explain what God's word says about giving a regular tithe. The word tithe means a tenth or 10%. Throughout the Old Testament, people understood giving 10% of what they received as income back to God by giving it to those who served him on a regular basis. It's originally seen in Abraham giving 10% of the income he received from his war against pagan kings to a priest of the Lord named Melchizedek. Later, this concept is incorporated into the law God gave to Israel through Moses. The tithes that the Israelites were to give were to be 10%. And 10% of what? The first fruits, right? Or the best of what the land produced for them. They then were to give the 10% of their produce and livestock to those who served in the tabernacle, or the Levites. When the temple was built, this practice carried through to the Levites serving in the temple. It was a very practical way for those who were not given land by God, but were to serve God in his house their entire lives to be provided for by the rest of the nation. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the temple of God, and the author of Hebrews refers to him as our high priest. After Jesus' death and resurrection, we no longer need to offer sacrifices in the temple, for Jesus became the fulfillment of the temple and its high priest. But the concept of making sacrifices did not cease to exist. It just changed form. Instead of offering animal sacrifices, we now offer ourselves as daily sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, to Jesus out of his love for his ultimate sacrifice. In the same way, the practice of tithing did not cease to exist at the beginning of the early church. It just changed form. And that while it was no longer given to God through those who served in the Jewish temple as their livelihood, it was now given to the high priest, Jesus, through those who served him as their livelihood. In fact, Paul makes a direct reference to the tithe practice in the Old Testament and extends it to those who served Jesus full time. He says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? There's that tithe. And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. Again, referencing that tithe practice. So also, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul takes this and extends it into the New Testament. Extends it into the church. If you just take that at face value, these two verses here. It says that the same practice that provided for the physical needs of those who served full-time in the temple, or the tithe practice, Jesus has extended to those who proclaim his gospel and serve him full-time to be provided for in the same way. So instead of an elimination of the tithe practice, as Paul had every opportunity to do here, he actually extends it to those who now serve the fulfillment of the Jewish law, Jesus. In fact, Paul uses the Jewish law and its direct referenced tithe practice to back up its extension to New Testament ministers. He says, am I expressing merely a human opinion or does the law say the same thing? He's using the law again and extending it into the New Testament. For a guy who spent the majority of his ministry 
telling the Gentiles they did not have to put themselves under the Jewish law in order to be followers of Jesus, this would have been a perfect opportunity to also break away from the Old Testament tithe principle. But instead of breaking away from it, he uses the law, along with its tithe practice, as his strongest point to back up the fact that he had every right to the same kind of remuneration and ministry. You see that? In addition, while not canonical, as referenced by R.C. Sproul, there is written evidence of the primitive church in the first century A.D. continuing in this tithe practice. The primitive church obviously saw the continuation of tithing as it pertained to the church as simply being understood as something to do. That's just what you do. You might say, but wait, wait, wait a second, let's pump the brakes here. Didn't Paul also say each one must do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver? Did not Paul also say that? You can see where one might think that this speaks against the giving of a regular tithe. But if you look at the immediate context, Paul is asking the Corinthian church to give to what kind of situation? I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving to who? For the believers in Jerusalem. Now let me explain a second. The area including Jerusalem was going through an awful famine at that time. And so Paul was raising funds from other churches that weren't affected by this famine to help out their impoverished brothers and sisters. So, does this gift have anything to do with the regular operation of giving to a church? No. It's a one-time gift above and beyond to address the needs of impoverished Christian brothers and sisters. This doesn't have anything to do with the extension of the tithe practice to regularly support the ministry and work of Jesus' local church. So... In other words, the New Testament speaks of two ways of giving towards Jesus' work. The regular financial support of Jesus' local church to continue his work by way of the regular giving of tithes and this above and beyond giving in addition to those tithes that we give to help support those in need, ministries around the world, those who work with the poor to help meet people's needs with the love of Jesus. So let's go back to the tithe. Paul also refers to the purpose of the New Testament tithe as only being logical. He says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, spiritual seeds, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Since the church and its minister sow spiritual needs in its congregation, is it too much for the congregation to give and for them to reap material support from that work? That, that's what Paul is really asking here, that rhetorical question. And the answer is no, it's not too much. Giving our tithe regularly to the church is not only following instruction, to the, instruction in the New Testament, but it only makes sense as remuneration for the hard work put into investing in our spiritual growth. Let's connect what the tithe is in Scripture to our lives today and using what is God's, again, to begin with, to build his kingdom here on earth. Again, the word tithe literally means what? 10%. That was really quiet. I'm going to hear it again. 10%. Okay. 10%. And in connection with the Old Testament tithe practice, which is extended into the New Testament, regular support of Jesus' work, it's 10% of what? Our first fruits. Or the best of what we have. So, I don't think Herbert has a farm and he has 
livestock. I don't think Ben has an orchard. He can give some apples. But what, what do we have? What's the best of what we have? What we receive as our income, whether it's a paycheck or a government-issued check or a retirement check or any other kind of regular income before anyone else has reached their hands into it, including the IRS. The simplest way of following this is taking that gross form of income amount, taking 10% of that, and setting that aside to give back to Jesus. How much has he done for us? How much has he given to us? He's given his life, his, he gave his life for us. And he continues to provide for us, and he continues to protect us. So we give that back to Jesus by way of his work through his church. I can feel this right now coming from you guys. It seems scary. I understand that. But that's where faith comes in. When does God's word ever tell us to do something that we're already comfortable with? Never, right? God is always stretching us. God is always bringing us to deeper and deeper levels of faith in him. Would the God who instructs us to regularly give back to him what is his anyway, through the tithe and above and beyond giving, would that same God not then give you enough to make your other bills? No. Right? Let, let's think about this very simply, with very simple childlike faith. Would he do that? No. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. <laughs> let's think about how our God is, and who our God is, and how big our God is, and how much he loves us, and how good he's been to us already. Is he going to leave you hanging? No. Most certainly not. In fact, Jesus outright promises, we already read this, that if we seek the kingdom of God above all else, above all else, even what the money we have, or how much or how little that is, God will always provide for our needs. That's why the tithe is a percentage. Did you ever think about how brilliant and beautiful even the tithe concept is? It's a percentage. See, God could have said, I want you to give blank num amount of, of, of dollars back to me. But he, gi he gives us a percentage. So no matter how little we have, it's 10% of that. How much we have, it's 10% of that. We're still following what he wants us to do, and he will still provide for all of our needs. It may not be all of our wants. Be very clear about that. It may not be all of our wants, but it will be all of our needs. Paul, in direct, directly in connection to the Philippians' financial support of him, says this, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And this isn't some metaphysical thing he's talking about. He's talking about financial situations. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But we have to be faithful to him with what he's already given to us. Beyond that, and this is what we'll close our time with before we move on to the Lord's table. Who know, and you know I'm not a prosperity preacher. I preach directly what's in the word of God. Who knows, though, who knows what kind of blessing we'll open ourselves up to by giving our regular tithes, by being faithful with what God has already given to us. Who knows what kind of blessing we'll open ourselves up to. Malachi 3.10 is awesome. 
Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And this is the only time God ever says in his word to put him to the test. The one and only time in all of scripture. Put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. And see, put me to the test, do it. And see if I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Do you want to open yourself up to blessing directly from the one who owns everything in this universe? Or do you want to close yourself off to blessing from him? I'm pretty sure I know the answer that you guys are all thinking. I'm pretty sure I know that answer. So, let's be in direct connection to this parable that we covered this morning. Let's be wise and let's be faithful with what God has already given to us. And the very basic way of doing that is giving that tithe, that 10% of what is God's anyways to begin with, back to him, back to his work, and let's just see what kind of blessing we'll open ourselves up to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't really put this into practice yet, I pray that you give them the courage to do so today. And those of us who have been doing it for a long time, I pray that you would spur us on to continue to do that and even more above and beyond to meet the needs of those around us. Lord God, I thank you for the, the creation, the birth of the church that you've given to us. This church family that, that we can be together and you hold us together through your bond of love and through, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have given us so much. And so, Lord, we can give what you ask us to give, what you instruct us to give in your word back to you to fund your work out of our love for you and all that you have done for us. May we do so with cheerfulness. May we do so with generosity. May we do so with that love and that, that graciousness and that uh, for, um that gratefulness for what you have already done for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.